0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
1: All right, this is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And I'm here with the first speaker of our Barcelona uh, computer brain and technology summer school Samir Zeki um, so Samir was was really great to uh, to hear you speak this morning about you know the work you've done over the last decades on, okay. on the visual brain thank you but before before you really delved into the science of it you you made some some remarks on multidisciplinarity and 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 your views on that so why was it important to you to, to sort of highlight your perspective on, on notodisponarity before you went into the science of the visual brain?
0: Well, it was important for me because you introduced uh, the session today by talking about how your institute here, your university, is uh, interested in uh, engaging in the arts and uh, in, in sciences. and It's not a unimodal subject. Now, um, the idea of being interdis- interdisciplinary is, 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 is uh, very fashionable at the, at the moment, and they keep telling us that how we should be inter- interdisciplinary. But the reality is very different. The reality is that people are extremely hostile. Now, let me just explain to you why I think this does not work so well. Because when you go to research councils, the panels that judge, uh, you have to choose panels. The panel that judge say, neurobiology, will have no knowledge about art, art or, or, or physics or um, philosophy. And therefore they say, well, uh, we don't think this is sort of philosophical enough or artistic enough. And the others do the same. So uh, doubts are raised, doubt are raised, plus the university structures, with, with one honourable exception, I have to say, which is my college, University College London. Uh, the structure of universities also is not conducive so in uh, most universities now you don't find a department of anatomy anymore but you find a department of cell and developmental biology so it includes things which are allied but you would never get a department of say uh, uh, neurobiology and and, uh, philosophy they won't do it and I think it's a great pity and I because I think that the problems asked by philosophy well I can put it this way one of the functions of the brain, of the main function of the brain, is to acquire knowledge, to, to take action for sure, but it has to acquire knowledge first. And one of the main problems of philosophy as a discipline is the problem of knowledge, of how we acquire it, and how certain we are of what we know. Now, what could be more natural than to ally these things? But you try to get some money for that, and you will not get it, because the whole structure of universities is, uh, is not conducive, and research councils. I just want to just end up by one thing which I said earlier on, which is that I am appalled by the advice given by one academy to young people who are interdisciplinary in tendency um, that don't declare it, go and master a field and then come out of the closet come out of the closet and declare yourself that you're interdisciplinarian. I think it's one of the most shocking bits of advice to give to a young aspirant uh, researcher when you should be asking them, settle on your problem and then use whatever approach you need to use and learn it. And young people are very enthusiastic and they're very inspired and they're very able to do that. But if you channel a person to spend 20 years to, or, or whatever they want to have in mind, to learn certain techniques and become masters before you reach them into inter- interdisciplinarity, I think it's very poor advice.
1: Sure. Because in some sense it might lead to a self fulfilling prophecy of a unidisciplinary. It will. It will of it will. a highly specialized Absolutely. person. <coughs> Absolutely. So look um, so so in that context, um, you have have you have linked your study of the visual brain also to the to the arts and to aesthetics and we will come to that to that later. Um, also given your current position as Professor of Nerve mm-hmm. but the, the, the foundation on which you made that jump was your understanding of the visual brain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, now in your talk you emphasized very much that you were advocating an alternative view on this visual brain. Yes. Okay. So, and this alternative view was very much going away from this rather you know, sequential uh, linear Yes. P- s- Processing structure that will go from retina to the lateral yeah. to nuclear to V1, etc. Yes. Right, so, so, what is really, what are the main outstanding differences between this traditional view and this new view that you're now
0: you know, advocating? So there are three or four, or four main differences, much of them rooted in, in new knowledge or not so new knowledge, which has been around for between 40 and 20 years, and some of it is accruing. One is that the common view that the Sole input, visual input to the visual brain or to the rest of the brain, is through the primary visual cortex. is simply not true. There's a lot of anatomy to, to show this, and it's been there for fifty years. The second point is that uh, we, the 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 systems that feed directly into visual areas outside V1, are capable of eliciting a conscious visual experience. Right, so. Uh, the, to experience a uh, visual stimulus consciously, you don't need V1, either as a pre-processor or a post-processor, as so many people assume. Thirdly, um, the, the uh, fact is that you do not see all the different attributes of the visual world at the same time in the micro-perceptual world, let's say below 150 milliseconds. We all assume that you did, but in fact you see color before you see uh, form, before you see motion. With differences which are quite significant, 80 milliseconds between color and motion, color coming first. And finally, the uh, principle which has been universally ignored, and I think it's a pity really, which is the principle of asynchrony, that the brain undertakes asynchronous operations all the time. Now, if you factor these, the asynchronous operations all the time, then I would think that one would have to modify quite considerably the theories, computational theories of how the visible brain functions. And in a way, really, I'm a bit surprised, maybe, maybe it's not a question of interdisciplinarity, but uh, um, the extreme of um, specialization. I'm a bit surprised that there's no computational theory, for example, today that takes into account the fact that the operation of the visual brain are highly asynchronous, because lots of things co- follow from that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not advocating at all throwing out previous findings, which are very good and robust and solid, and there have been very many, many, many exciting ones. I'm simply saying that these have got to be all integrated together. And if you do that, you get a different notion of how the visual brain functions than the one we currently have.
1: But So the examples that you you not provide are sort of questioning this notion of, of a single hierarchy yes uh, but does that imply that you believe that there are multiple hierarchies and yes. if so how many
0: yes uh, uh, it certainly implies there are multiple hierarchies and there are at least three with subdivisions within each uh, but I cannot tell you how many I think there may be quite a few uh, in fact there may be quite a few which use the same systems the same hierarchical systems uh, the important thing is, uh, one, is that the single hierarchy, the idea first put forward by Hugo mudel is not true, uh, even for the form system. They base their whole theory on the form system, but even in the form system, that's not entirely true. And um, the, uh, the notion uh, that, that the hierarchies um, temporarily involve always the activation of V1 first and the other areas is not true. And thirdly, that the perceptual hierarchies would obey the latency hierarchies is not true. So you've got to find a common common denominator. What can that be? That denominator is that hierarchies, which of the systems, with are several hierarchical systems operating in parallel, which of these has precedence and priority depends upon the task and the stimulus. To my knowledge, that explains it all as of the present time. But of course, you may have to change it if new facts come into uh, light. But now, (coughs) we could argue
1: that that there might be three perspectives on hierarchy, right? We might have anatomical hierarchies, physiological hierarchies, and functional hierarchies. Yes. And they're not necessarily identical.
0: Well, exactly, they're not. Right.
1: But in terms of the, the anatomical hierarchy, what would you see as the key pathways when we talk about the visual brain?
0: See, there are two different kinds of anatomical hierarchies. One is the hierarchy through V1, retinal lateral geniculate nucleus V1, the other visual areas. And another hierarchy is, of course, retinal lateral geniculate to the specialized areas and to V1. But uh, there are uh, other hierarchies. I mean, um, the the um, within within the uh, uh, Within the anatomical system, people have defined hierarchical systems. This has started with uh, uh, Pandya and his colleagues. They defined it as an area that projects to a higher cortical area, projects to a lower four of that cortical area, all right? and an area that receives from a higher cortical area receives input into the upper and lower layers. So. Uh, so you've got or something or some kind of arrangement like that which seems to be true everywhere so you can classify areas into a hierarchy with respect to each other but now look at it uh, area v1 projects to the lower four of area v5 and hence you would say that area v5 is a lower is a higher area compared to uh, area v1 um, uh, but Actually, if you look at the arrival of signals in these areas with fast motion, you find that V5 receives them first. So that latency hierarchy does not obey the anatomical hierarchy. Now, if you look at perceptual mechanisms, you find that if uh, it is um, you, 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 I mean, the, the latency of, of uh, arrival of signals into V5 with fast moving stimuli is 28 to 32 milliseconds, it happens to be quite close to the latency of arrival of uh, color signals into V4, which is in the sort of 30 to 40 millisecond range. Now, you would assume that you see color and motion roughly at about the same time, or if anything, you would see fast motion before you see color. Not true. You see color before you see motion by 80 milliseconds. So the perceptual hierarchy does not obey the physiological latency hierarchy. Mm That is why I have sought to find a system that would, uh, b- b- uh, that, that would explain all these hierarchies, and the only one I can find is a task and, and stimulus-dependent one.
1: But anatomically, uh, <coughs> what you advanced was in the idea that there's actually a parallel um, feed-forward pathway that is not running over the LGN into V1, but it runs over the pulvinar directly to higher visual areas, yes. higher cortical visual areas. Yes. So would that be then the, the foundation for the anatomical hierarchy?
0: Well, they're all hierarchical. I mean, there, there are three, uh, at least three. One is retina LGN, V1, and then visual areas. One is retina LGN directly to the visual areas. One is retina pulvinar, directly to all of these visual areas. I suspect that the pulvinar one, and I don't know much about it. I know that the anatomy exists. That's well known. It's been known for 50 years almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, but I, uh, I, I suspect that the pulvinar system may be much more concerned with attentional mechanisms, which, of course, every area has them. I mean, attentional mechanisms are involved in every area. So I suspect that it's partly that. Um, I think there is reasonable evidence to show that the capacity of uh, V5... To register consciously, the direction of fast-moving stimuli is more dependent, if in the absence of V1, is more dependent upon the LGN than the pulvinar.
1: But now, if if we go back to 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 this the anatomy and the notion of hierarchy, and we take also into account that anatomically, thalamus and cortex are strongly and recurrently coupled. Yes. This might the notion make the notion of a hierarchy also more complicated because it's not just that thalamus is not driving cortex, cortex in turn is
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But this, but you see, you have to when you do when you look at these massive massive connections from the cortex to the to the thalamus. When you do that, then you have to ask to all the same questions you asked uh, about arrival of signals in the visual areas do all the inputs to the thalamus from the visual areas arrive at the same time? Mm-hmm. And probably not, because these different visual areas complete their perceptual tasks at different times. So you're right, and this pushes things further still, but it can, it can still be accommodated within the context of what I was saying.
1: Okay. But now Murray Sherman, <coughs> for instance, if you, if, in, in how he describes these cortical-thalamic interactions, he's also talking about a very specific bias in how the recurrence between cortex and thalamus is defined where lower or what they would call lower cortical areas would already have collaterals projecting into the thalamic nuclei that serve higher level cortical areas so that might imply that there's an anatomical preference hierarchy if you want in terms of how signals are propagated through that system would that, would that still fit your picture, or would it be more problematic?
0: Uh, well, uh, let me say that I haven't actually really thought about that, so I think I'd better not speculate on that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> OK. Um, so but okay, but, but, so here we have an anatomical picture. But in, in some sense, <coughs> we're not considering other subcortical visual areas, like the superior colliculus. Can you really be sure that the superior colliculus is not another hub? in, in, in this kind of anatomical arrangement. No, no, of it, it,
0: it is, a hub. It is yeah. a hub. I mean, every yeah. single visual area projects the superior collicus. Right. Um, now, what it does is is is, is not so clear. Uh, it, it's uh, a bit... Uh, part of the input to the pulver now probably comes from the superior collicus. But the projections from the uh, cortex to the superior colliculus may be very important guiding eye movements. They work with Bob and others. Uh, but... Uh, you see, there you raise a question, which is, uh, which was raised this morning, up to a point. <coughs> Given that each visual area projects to the superior colliculus, and projects to the LGN, and projects to other areas, there must be some selective basis on whether, on what's being relayed. So, how does that work? This is anyone's guess. But it's a general problem of uh, great interest for all cortical things. What is the selective process? that dictates if indeed there is one because an alternative would be that um, the the uh, an area sends out signals to all the areas with which it's connected and it's up to the areas, the receiving areas to sort it out. Mm-hmm. That's an alternative. Mm-hmm. Both may be working. But it's a major problem. Mm-hmm.
1: And we could be, so, so anatomically, imagine you wouldn't know anything about the physiology of this system if you would just follow the wires. Yeah. You would be hard pressed, I think, to really identify unambiguously a hierarchical relation, because in some sense all these structures communicate with each other one way or the other.
0: Uh, yes, you, you, indeed, you're right. And the reason why they did identify a, a, uh, a hierarchy this is the, this is the one thing which has remained from the 1876 discoveries of uh, Solomon Hentzian. The the reason why they did. Uh, I, I, Come up with a hierarchical doctrine is that the retina projects the LGN projects to V one, mm-hmm. and they couldn't trace it beyond V one, mm-hmm. and so they said that is the uh, this is the hierarchy, and it was entirely a good picture. However, let me just say that when I described that there were projections from uh, multiple projections from each point in V one to visual association cortex, um, I think almost nobody read into it. That this is there must be a functional specialization. It's only when I did the physiological experiment, mm-hmm. but then people may not have thought about it very much. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. But but in some sense, so your 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 proposal now was to say, well, there are multiple but with a finite set of of path hierarchically organized pathways that structure the visual brain, and then two of them running over LGN and one running over pulvinar. Yes. That, that's your. Proposal. But if you just look at the anatomy as we now discuss it, couldn't you argue that from an anatomical perspective it's actually a non-hierarchical system, but it's a physical substrate that could accommodate many possible functional
0: hierarchies? That's exactly what I am arguing. Uh, I mean, mean, it's hierarchical formally in the sense that it includes uh, sequential stages. Mm -hmm. So uh, for all three systems, you've got retina, LGN cortex or retina pulverna cortex. So it's uh, uh, formulated that way. But functionally, it is, uh, as you described, that, and that's, that, uh, that's what I'm saying. Okay, good.
1: No, so then I got it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but then, so, so the anatomy, we, we, okay, we have this idea now. We have this rather om- omnipotent substrate that yes. right, so can depend on task, it's also a, how yeah. you call it, right? Then configure itself dynamically yes. for certain hierarchical processing yes. relations. This is also confirmed by the very specific latencies that you observe. Yes. As, as you already described, yes, right? Yes, yes. Like color before motion. Yes, well. yes, yes. But now, now you can argue well: some of these latencies might be imposed dynamically and others might be really fixed given your substrate. I mean, if you have to cross more synapses, it will slow the signal down more than if you cross less synapses, right? So of, the, of these latencies that you look at, which of these are indicating really physical limitations of that system, and which of those do you believe are more dynamically configured depending on tasks?
0: Well, I mean, you have to assume that the latency, the physiological latency now, the, that, that when an impulse activates an area sufficiently for it to be detected, then that it is uh, somehow inducing an activity in that area which does something. Now, what it does is not clear. Of course not, um, but that's very different, of course, from the perceptual latency, and and you cannot predict the two. I mean, uh, uh, you can't predict one from the other. Um, so you have to factor in uh, another another uh, issue here, which is, what are the computational requirements within an area, or what are the procedures, or algorithms, or programs, or concepts within the area, which it has to go through to generate its Uh, construct, I mean, uh, you know, for for generating colors, the brain has got to compare the wavelength composition of light coming from many different areas, All right? To generate motion, you've got to look at the signals coming from two successive points uh, in time. And so you've got a a, a variety of different tasks which have different computational requirements which also must dictate. Mm -hmm. uh, Now, there is another factor which compensates up to a point, which is, so you talk about the number of cells interposed between the stimulus and the area in the cortex. We know that there's a, um, in the, it's quite limited in the retina, you know exactly what they are, they must all go through the rods and cones, and then the bipolars, and then the ganglion with the amacrines in between. And the same is true of, of the LGN. But then you've got another factor, which is the diameter of the fibers, the speed with which they deliver their signals. And in a way, in a way, uh, I mean, it is, uh, I would have thought that uh, the fact that the motion system has got large diameter fibers, which deliver signals rapidly, is possibly, I'm not I'm speculating, is possibly a compensation for the fact that the working out of motion is, is slower than that of color. So you've got to factor in that uh, physiology and anatomy as well.
1: But now, uh, if you look at this, if you talk about a dynamically defined hierarchical relation, let's say from feet forward to top down, yes. you would expect that this would modulate the physiological latencies in that system. Mm-hmm. If I expect a stimulus, you would expect that also the physiological processing is more, mm-hmm. more efficient, more rapid. hmm so, how big do you expect that modulation to be in, let's say, your standard visual detection tasks?
0: Well, uh, it's uh, speculatively, it's it's got to be inferior to forty milliseconds, mm-hmm. because that is really beyond below thirty milliseconds. One is very hesitant to talk about about uh, things, but uh, above forty milliseconds, because. Uh, because beyond one hundred and fifty milliseconds, you see everything in good registration. It's finished. You're now in the macro perceptual world. It's, it's that, that world between zero and one hundred and fifty milliseconds, where there is interesting action. And so I think it falls somewhere mm-hmm. in that range. Okay.
1: So then, um, but now in, in terms of these hierarchical relations, in some sense, what we're you know, tacitly um, including in this description is that. And this also goes back to Hubel and Wiesel, is that <coughs> hierarchy it also implies that we integrate towards a visual object by combining its components. And as mm-hmm. always, we go from the details to the gestalt, to the, to the overall mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that that still is a guiding principle? No. Okay, no. why not?
0: I uh, would say that that is uh, only half true and therefore not true. So the, the uh, Gestalt people said that um, a complex object is other than the sum of its parts. Just so a, uh, a line considered to be, lines considered to be building blocks of forms, it is as if lines cannot have an independent existence of their own as forms. It is as if a line is always going to be used to, do, to get somewhere, and that's not the case. As the artists will tell you, many artists, uh, from Barnett Newman, Olga Rotonova, Kazimir Malevich and so many others used the line as a principal element in their paintings and these stood in their own writer's forms. Secondly, I think that it is the, the, the uh, assumption that it's a building block uh, system does not take account of the fact that there may be other uh, and building block system starting in V1, which is what the assumption mainly is that there may be other inputs which uh, do not go through the orientational system at all. That maybe a face is not built up from oriented lines, although oriented lines may contribute to it. And uh, thirdly, I think that um, you know if you look at orientation selective cells, there are, you find them in V1, you find them in V2, you find them in V3, you find them in V3a. And if you look at V3 and V2 and V3a, Apart from change in receptive field between V2 and V3 and V3A, their properties are fairly similar. We might find difference, but fairly similar to at least casual observation. Now is it conceivable that the brain just keeps on repeating this? Is it conceivable that the input from the LGN may not contribute to the properties of these orientation selective cells? See, th- th- it is not, it's not a question that, that we are getting uh, the wrong answers. It's a question that we are not taking account of other inputs which may modulate things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there must be a reason for having a big input from the LGN to these areas. And it is possible that uh, they build up um, orientation selectivity. In fact, in fact, they do, because uh, Nikos Logothetis and his colleagues in in uh, Germany showed that if you ablate V1 completely in the macaque monkey, you still get very good orientation selective cells in V2 and V3. Now they they are they are more um, uh, sluggish in the response, but they are very respectable. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a question of uh, then asking. Well, what role do these inputs play, either in building up differences in orientational profiles or in building up different shapes completely?
1: Mm -hmm. But then you described one experiment where you looked at it explicitly, right, where you used these primitive shapes to either build a house as a stimulus or a face. Yes, yes. And you then compared the detection between these two classes of stimuli. Yes, yes.
0: And that showed that you get the uh, input into V one, an area specialized for faces and houses, such as the fusiform face area and the hippocampal uh, place area. The latencies are identical, okay. and and the deflection in terms of strength, around fifty femto teslas, is also identical. Right. So uh, now, unless you posit uh, the notion that these are supernumerary, ineffectual inputs. Mm-hmm you have got to take into account what they do. And there are interesting things. For example, you can get patients who uh, are able to recognize uh, line drawings but cannot recognize the combination that these line drawings produce. By the same time, you get patients who can recognize the photograph of a building or something but cannot recognize the line drawings. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to me, the question is, uh, is wide open mm-hmm. around. But now,
1: let's speculate a bit on that, right? Because what's interesting here is that in this experiment where we do house versus phase detection, it's mm-hmm. actually just a, a tiny manipulation of the elements in this the yes. line drawing yes. that makes a stimulus. If you now say, okay, this is this fusiform phase area, we do see a significant response in, in fMRI, right? This is in humans. How many transformations have taken place if the detection of house or face or that distinction would happen in an area? How many transformations do you imagine have been taking place if we go from the retina to this specific okay. area? Okay.
0: The, the the minimum number of transformations in the system that goes directly from the LGN to these areas must be the retina plus the LGN plus one synapse. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, the minimum, which uh, if you take it as being rooted through V1, is, of course, a lot more because you go to V1 and V2 and V3 and then to, to uh, the fusiform. By the way, I don't think anybody has actually seen a direct input from V1 or V2 to the fusiform face area, but I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a, a different um, number of synapses. And the typical signal for seeing faces is a negativity at one hundred seventy milliseconds after stimulus presentation, but this does not mean to say that you ignore the uh, stimulus that comes at one hundred the deflection that comes at thirty to forty milliseconds. I mean, let us suppose that that there is a certain configuration which primes the fusiform face area, saying that this is a face. Right without working out the details. Well, that's a very significant contribution. What I'm objecting to is that I've not read a single paper, I don't think, not a single paper on face physiology which does not assume that it all starts with the orientation-selective cells of V1. Now, there's even more simple than that. People have uh, supposed that cells in V4 There are cells in V4 which care about curvature. They also care about colour, and they are separate from cells which are only interested in colour. Now, nobody, nobody has shown physiologically how you transform orientation selective cells into curvature-detecting cells. They have shown it computationally, which is a different matter. But you see, uh, so they call um, V4 a curvature detector, uh, is this justified? I would wonder. I mean, the acceptance angles of orientation selective cells in V4, I've measured them, and others have also done, is much, much wider than the acceptance angles of, of uh, orientation selective cells in V1. and Therefore, you can see that they could probably respond better, better to curvatures. Yeah. The, ultimately, I mean, you have to, if you are going to say that, look, it all depends upon the orientation selective cells of V1, you must be able to demonstrate convincingly, physiologically and functionally, and that is missing. Mm-hmm. All there is, it's all an assumption.
1: Right. So, so would you, in some sense, say that the visual brain is highly tuned to to first respond to the gestalt of of, of the stimulus as opposed to its details?
0: I think with faces it is. Yes, mm-hmm. I think, fa- and also with facial expressions. I mean, if you consider a to be. The visible brain, which in a sense it is, I mean, it responds very rapidly to uh, uh, fear on a face, mm-hmm. and by all accounts, uh, before you get any, get any responses from view one. So, yes, I would say that that is the correct way, probably, of say, uh, putting it to the gestalt, but un, the gestalt being understood as being other than the sum of the parts.
1: Absolutely, yes but then the encoding of that is still a mystery.
0: The encoding of that is a big, big mystery, and what the further input from V1, V2, plays in 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 building up the final profile is also a mystery. Mm-hmm. And and no one's saying they do not contribute. They do, but how is not known?
1: Right. Well, we think we have a solution to that. It's called a temporal population code. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can describe it to you outside of this, this interview, but the, the basic idea is basically that if you look at volumes of cortical cells, they, they perform space-to-time transformations. Like you drive the cells locally, but they're all laterally coupled. It's like throwing a stone in a pond. The mm-hmm. Stone will create these waves rippling through the pond. Mm-hmm. If you just take the spatial average of those waves, you get a temporal trace. And we have shown that this temporal trace can give you high-quality, high-resolution detection of complex stimuli, including faces. I see. Okay? But, okay, we, we, can, we can talk about this in more, in more detail later. This
0: is done uh, in computational area? That's yeah. all
1: computational. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to look for physiological validation. But there, is, there are some hints coming now from the optical imaging literature that, that, that gives us the kind of dynamic signatures in these cortical maps that is consistent oh, with yeah. the whole concept. Mm-hmm. So, so this idea of gestalt encoding, I think, is key. And computationally, mm-hmm. there I think there are some, some roots into that. Um, but but,
0: but uh, are, are we are we agreed that the gestalt, uh, gestalt encoding is is not synonymous with uh, bringing various bits of uh, stimulus together? We are agreed on that. Absolutely. Okay. absolutely. So
1: we, we have to jump out of yes. standard sequential hierarchical thinking, mm-hmm. going back to the perceptron yes, uh, yes, indeed. Yes, yes, is yes. Or the pandemonium model of uh, self rich, right? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so, um, but, so, okay, so we have an idea now of physical hierarchy. We have a view on, on how this supports a plurality of functional hierarchies um, in which latencies of the signal transduction, feed forward or top down, can be actively regulated. Mm-hmm. But indeed, the important consequence, as you already pointed out, is now we have an asynchronous system mm-hmm. that has also a highly variable expression, right? Mm-hmm so so the, is the asynchrony a feature or a bug
0: no it's a feature okay it's a fundamental feature
1: yeah, but how does it help the processing how does it help in let's say the detection of a face or the emotional expression of a face or linking a name to
0: that face well um, i mean um, i'm not sure the asynchrony itself helps the detection of a face but the asynchronous perception of faces and facial expressions and colors and motion has got an a, a advantage to it mm. in that, you see, what is the, the current uh, theory of how the visual brain works? The visual brain, it used to be thought to be hierarchical and then they accepted, grudgingly at first, that it was parallel. And now I think it's all everything is combined together and then you get a recognition. No allowance has been made for the fact that it may be recognized individual attributes separately. Then if you... So uh, the systems do not... If they're operating asynchronously, they do not wait for each other to finish their task. Now, what are the advantages of that? There are probabilistic advantages. If you can identify an object, which has... Let's take just take three attributes, form, color, and motion. If... I put a gun to your head and say identify this for me as quickly as you can, you are at a great advantage if you can identify it by using one of the three attributes alone without waiting for them to be combined. If I compare you to another person also with a gun to his head but who has to combine all three to identify it, then he's going to be the loser. So, uh, so it is, uh, and I, I suspect that this is why uh, evolution tolerated an asynchronous system in which one system of the brain does not wait for the other.
1: Mm-hmm. However, in the end, it has to come together in your action. In, in, in recognizing that face.
0: In the end, it all has co- uh, to come together, but then in, in the end, what are we talking about? We're talking about the difference between, as I say, a micro-world and a macro-world. We're mm-hmm. talking in, 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 in the in the sub-second uh, level. All right, So um, Uh, It has to come together, and this is one of the big mysteries of how, and I've compared it today to the difference between the world of quantum mechanics and gravitational physics, these two are separate worlds, how do you bring them together? And I don't know the answer to it.
1: Okay, but then, so the one that we have these, as you call these micro-perceptual domains, or you also talk about micro-conscious domains, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Um, these will all have their intrinsic time constants, which might be modulated in some way. And then this leads to their asynchronous operation. Yeah. Now, how many of these micro-domains would you distinguish?
0: I think uh, if you were to press me, I would say that there's almost an infinite number. Okay. I mean, uh, 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 certainly ones for color, for motion, uh, for, for uh, depth and for faces and facial expressions, a number of different yeah. things. Uh, I think that the, 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 the uh, by the way, the, if you have two percepts which you perceive at different times, you then uh, are quite safe in concluding that they are processed by different groups of cells. Mm-hmm. But the converse is not true. If you perceive two different attributes at the same time, you cannot say they're processed by the same cell, because they could be the same uh, groups finish their processing at yeah. different times. So I don't know the answer, but the answer is it could be many. Um, yeah. Infinite is perhaps pushing it, but it could be quite a few. This
1: has an implication, right? Because it means that this traditional segmentation of the visual brain in, let's say, uh, orientation, shape, motion, color, disparity, might be a bit an over- an optimistic Uh, fragmentation in just a few core domains, while below that you might have many uh, micro-segmentations of a visual stimulus.
0: Yes, 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 you can have, yes, I mean, if you, if you, um, so, uh, uh, you want to, one of the functions of the brain is to gain knowledge about the world in order to take action. Knowledge comes first you would uh, uh, grasp at any item that gives you information so you could uh, indeed exactly as you say you could below that level have a a segmentation but a segmentation must have a a functional uh, rational or rationale and the functional rationale is the identification of something
1: right but now would you also allow that a micro domain could, could combine let's say color and motion would That also be a micro domain, a micro perception
0: uh, domain. No, that would go with macro. Okay, that would be macro so for me. So it yeah. was within one of
1: these core yes. modalities. Yes, yes, All right. yes, yes. Um, but now, would, would uh,
0: but, but by the way, by the way, I, I think that there is there is something which is worth saying here, which which if, if I may just divert into art for a second, um, and um, and I don't know the solution to it, but you see, uh, uh, if you look at a work of art, let us take a very complicated work of art. Let us take uh, the music lesson by Vermeer, something which you all, the girl with the pearl earring, is familiar with that. Now, there are certain, uh, what you might call segments or details in that. There's the earring, there's the mouth, there's the eyes. They're very expressive eyes, very expressive lips, and so on and so forth. And then the earring, the forehead, and the way she looks. But then there's the entire picture. <laughs> and the entire picture is, again, in the gestalt sense, the entire picture is other than the sum of the parts. And so that's what I'm, I'm trying to say. Uh, somebody asked me the other day uh, about, um, in London, last week. He said, well, you know, I, I, I see no ambiguity in, in the music lesson. I've painted it and I've studied it very carefully. I said, well, are you an artist? He said, yes. And then, what have you studied? He, said, he studied the tablecloth, you see. <laughs> He's forgotten about the painting, which is something else. Mm-hmm. So there it is. In another example, for an artistic world, in which you've got segmentation and subsegmentation, Right.
1: But now, to, to close that this, this issue of asynchrony, um, could we, which, of course, from a computational perspective, is massively challenging, because we're not used to think in terms of asynchronous yes. systems. Yes, As you also mentioned, so yes. computers are strongly synchronized, and they're clocked, and we tightly control yes. these things. yes. Now, you could argue that in the brain we have some sort of a hybrid synchronous-asynchronous system because we have a lot of oscillatory patterns that seem to regulate the overall firing rate of neurons, right? A typical example would be, let's say, this theta gamma coding, you might see, where theta gives you, like, a slow oscillatory response that supports some sort of selection, that not everything mm-hmm. responds all the time, but mm-hmm. only a subset of cells that have the most right. strongest drive, right? Right. So, would, would that satisfy also your requirements of how I could integrate over these asynchronous micro-perceptual... Yeah.
0: Yes. Now, that is, that, that is the most obvious way that I mm-hmm. see it at the moment, and actually I don't see an alternative. And look, the fact is the binding problem has been studied for 35 years, and nobody today, and please contradict me if I'm wrong, nobody today can tell us how binding occurs. Mm-hmm. We don't know. You're right. So um, I think one possibility is exactly as, as you put it, that two, so, so let's say the hippocampus and the theta rhythms or gamma rhythms act as a coincidence detector, saying two events occur at the same time. And it's extremely interesting from this point of view to realize that visual signals can reach the hippocampus as quickly as they reach the visual cortex. Now, I did not know that until quite recently. So let us suppose that the color and the, the uh, direction of motion occur within the same theta cycle, then the brain might accept it as being highly probable that they are linked. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the sort of way I'm thinking about it, but I'm not sure that I've solved it uh, or I've demonstrated it. Of course not.
1: So are, are you in that sense suggesting that maybe hippocampus is the top-level processing <coughs> structure in the visual brain?
0: No, I wouldn't call it top-level processing structure, but a top-level structure which aids in uh, processing yeah. and perception mm-hmm. of things coming together. Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah. at least in terms of generating, let's say, a memory dependent prediction yes. of what the yes.
0: scene would be. Ye- yes, yes.
1: In this case, yes, right? yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. So but so, so so okay, so now we have to we have a view on the visual brain which 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 in some sense is also um, a very challenging view because sometimes you, you have now questioned a lot of these things we thought were set in stone almost, right? yes. But yes. this is definitely it's
0: not it's not been easy for me either.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But um, So now, but you you came to this via the study of color. Yes. And now color in itself is also actually way more confusing and challenging than than you might naively think it is, because color is actually one of the first uh, elements of perceptual process that really tells you that the brain constructs the percept. It's not given. Is that also why you went for the study of color? Was that the main consideration?
0: No, let me, if you you want to know the history of that, it's not an uninteresting history. I was completely dazzled by the uh, uh, work and the uh, papers of Huber and Wiesel. And uh, they were studying primary visual cortex, as as were most people, and I liked the space to myself, so I thought I'd look at the uh, uh, visual association cortex. And I thought that I would... uh, end up doing physiology to prove them right in this endless hierarchical process. But everything I did showed that it was a parallel processing system that looked at different attributes. Now, I had no idea at all uh, that uh, uh, I would find something an area which is specialized for color. Indeed, this was hotly contested at the beginning. But uh, I nevertheless used stimuli of color, of motion, form as being the three sort of attributes I could think about, and which, which showed up the specialization for color. Now, as I say, it was disputed at the beginning, but it's now uh, confirmed. But the color, you see, takes you into a totally different world. First of all, um, the color does not exist in the world outside. Uh, light electromagnetic radiation it has got no color. It's constructed by the brain. But much of the study of color and color psychophysics, in particular, was, in fact, based on the Newtonian system that you know there's a relationship between the wavelength composition of the light, a direct relationship, and the color perceived. <clears throat> Edwin Land came to me and convinced me that this was not the case, and the whole system of uh, obtaining uh, information about the color system. And the way the whole way of studying it that I used since then changed. It was no longer this reduction screen, small spots of light, but complex natural scenes. And the uh, uh, I mean, when I first described the color specialization at Oxford in 1972, David Hubel came up to me and said, "You've discovered the philosopher's stone." And in a way. That is what opened up, not that comment, but the study of colour opened up for me the rest of my career in terms of my interest in philosophy and art and uh, things like that because uh, philosophy is the world of knowledge and many philosophers have actually concentrated on colour and of how you uh, get information about the world in colour. And of course, I, I mean, Schopenhauer wrote a book about it, you know. And uh, then you... It is not a big jump from that to the world of art thing. What kind of noise do you get from the world of art? So it was, it had for me in my career a significance beyond its demonstration as a specialized system. And from the point of view of physiology, I think it convinced me, and it's convinced some, but I don't think enough people yet, that the um, operations used by the brain to construct colors are vastly different from what you would predict from the retinal mechanism, vastly different. That you've got huge surrounds, you've got to work out ratios, that working out of ratios is an inherited concept, that there's no appeal against it. That cognitively, you see, I mean, you, if you go to, to Hyde Park in London at dawn or at dusk and look at the leaves, they look green. Although I know, because I've measured it, they reflect more red light. Now, this knowledge... Does not make me see the leaves as as, as green, so it introduces a host of interesting issues and opens up a vast new world, which is of enormous interest.
1: Yeah, but then in your opinion, is the problem of of color perception solved? Do we can we, no. can you say look, we can really explain how color perception and the invariance of color perception works?
0: I think we can explain it um, t- perceptually. But I don't think we can explain it physiologically. What can we say about it physiologically? We can say about physiologically that it involves the it must involve at least two receptors which have got different spectral sensitivities. It certainly involves the projection from the retina to the LGN to the primary visual cortex to V two to V four. That some operation takes place in V4, which compares the wavelength composition of light coming from one area uh, and that coming from surrounding areas to build up ratios. That if you damage V4, you uh, end up with a system of, uh, with a patient who's got cerebral achromatopsia, in other words, cannot see the world in colors. But some of these patients can actually uh, discriminate between objects on the basis of wavelengths reflected, therefore, they get a completely wrong impression about the world. That is the full stop. Mm. How the brain implements that, how the different cells collaborate to take ratios, etc., is, is not at all clear. There's one other thing you can say about this color system is that hues as opposed to colors the shades of color are almost strictly a function of V4. So, uh, but to do that, you require quite an elaborate uh, s- uh, system, which I don't think anyone is yet competent enough to do. You require to record from multitudes of cells simultaneously, single cells. And I don't think ABD is up to the task yet, but that area is not known. Okay.
1: But do you think you can understand color perception decoupled from
0: form? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can understand it uh, uh, formally in the sense that um, uh, color requires a comparison. uh, 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 Color is actually much simpler than form, you know. People think form is the simplest, but color is the simplest. In fact, people think the motion is the simplest, but color is the simplest. You have got uh, four degrees of freedom, three wave bands, but you could have two, two, and the uh, luminosity. Mm So what you do, you simply uh, look at the wavelength composition of light coming from one surface or that coming from surrounding surfaces, and you work out a ratio. That ratio never changes given a certain situation. In other words, if I'm looking at a given scene at, from a given spot in uh, Hyde Park in London, the wave, and I'm looking at a given leaf, which is stationary, so it's pushing it a bit, but um, you uh, work out, your brain works out the, the uh, amount of long, middle and short wave light reflected from that green leaf in, ter- in relation to the amount of long, middle and short wave light reflected from the surround. And you can carry on looking at that at dawn and at dusk and at noon when the wavelength composition changes all the time, but that ratio will never change. Mm-hmm. So color is one of the prime examples of how the brain stabilizes the world. obtain information about it. Uh, Of course uh, the the hue changes, the the shade of color changes, but the color category Mm -hmm. does not change. So that I think is is, uh, fairly well evident. So what does this mean? It means that uh, the brain has got to compare simultaneously in time characteristics in terms of wavelength composition reflected from two surfaces. It never changes. Form is slightly different. Form, it has got to work out the relationship of individual parts to one another, which, and then, has got to work out how, if you view it from different angles and different uh, uh, distances, that maintains its constancy, which is, in fact, also the question that the cubists, earlier Antical cubists, were asking. So that becomes a much, much more difficult system. Now, people uh, have shown, actually, that there are sometimes uh, situations in which objects can be viewed from different uh, angles and lead to activity in the same part of the brain. I think some people in America have done that. But the detailed mechanisms are still not clear. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: But then so, so, okay, here, here we have it, right? We have, a, we have a picture of the visual brain. It's more complex than initially thought. But now with that picture in mind, you, you then turn those into art. Yes. Okay, so w- w- why did you make that step?
0: Well, I made that step partly because, you know, um, partly because I was always interested in going to art museums and looking at things which raised questions in my mind, partly because I also thought to myself, look, I've been paid a lot of money in grants, um, and what can I say about what happens in our brains when we look at some of the most prized things in our culture, namely works of art, which all societies have produced? And then when I looked more into this question, I began to discover that these these people are my friends. I mean, the artists, they have been pursuing the same questions as me. They've looked at Joseph Albers, he got it all wrong, but he asked questions about color, as did Plato. And uh, the cubists asked about form, the kinetic artists asked questions about motion, and they reached conclusions which we reached many years after them. And a uh, question of modulation of form uh, by colour, was Cézanne asked. But then there are other things. I mean, um, you, you, my view is, I, mean, I know that there's a definitional problem, but my view is that all art is an abstraction. Because what you do is, for example, you take a face and you abstract an expression which then applies to all faces. So the, the, the question is, how, do you, how does an artist obtain knowledge and how does he impart it? And it's a tremendous, tremendous um, uh, talent. And, uh, you know, there's one, one um, painting, Juan de Perea, by uh, Velasquez, when it was first exhibited in Rome in the 17th century. Some art critics said, uh, I have seen many paintings in this exhibition, but this alone is the truth so it spoke to him something about so it was abstract in that sense so Mm -hmm. if you look at the process of abstraction the processes of of, um maintaining constancies these are physiological problems Mm -hmm. the kinds of modulation the the, the process of reductions that as you when you want to to represent pure movement as they called it i wouldn't call it that but that's what they called it um you then, what they did, Alexander Calder and others, is they removed forms and they removed color. And precisely, this is what precisely what happens in V5 cells. They respond to motion but are indifferent to form and to the color. So, you know, it's it's profitable to the physiologist to inquire into these. Can but, say that the,
1: artist, the artists intuit, intuit, if you want, principles of perception. Yes. What are the principles that you think? Stand out here as really being having been discovered by the artists, and maybe later on being further interpreted by science.
0: Well, I think I think that uh, there are several. One of them is the question of form constancy. Now, the uh, uh, analytic cubists did not solve the problem, but nor have the uh, physiologists who so have taken up this this problem much later. I mean, I'm talking physiologists, not gestaltists. The question of the modulation of form by color never occurred to us until it was demonstrated that form and color are separately mapped in the brain. The question of, uh, again, the characteristics of a kinetic system never occurred. But then, see, there are other things. For example, it is well known, apparently, in the artistic world, that to convey, regardless of whose face it is, to convey a degree of haughtiness and uh, snobbery and indifference in... Um, this is 16th century Venice what you did was to have someone whose head is turned away but he's looking at you with his eyes alone and You see they captured this very very well this is uh, uh, but, but this is a physiological fact and you you uh, the fact that so many people agree that this is a, um, a sign of, of aloofness and, and not, is quite uh, quite interesting but <coughs> the the, the if I may pursue this, and there, there is an another question that comes to this, and this has now changed my life quite significantly, and that is the relationship of art and beauty. And uh, you, you see, we are often um, uh, attacked uh, because people say, well, who, who, who are you to address beauty? What is beauty? Well, the question is we don't address what is beauty. We address the question of what are the neural mechanisms that are engaged when you experience beauty, which is actually as legitimate and as simple scientific question as asking what are the neural mechanisms that are engaged when you perceive faces or colors. But <coughs> the question of beauty, I mean, it's an interesting thing, uh, but when you address it and you find that the experience of uh, visual beauty and musical beauty and moral beauty and mathematical beauty above all correlate with activity in the same part of the brain, then you begin, uh, you are shaken quite a lot. And then you put down mathematical beauty into, because mathematical beauty was, was, was considered by Plato to be the highest form of beauty. And he said so because he thought it gave you something about the structure of the universe. It gave you information about the structure of the universe because something makes sense. Now, I put mathematical beauty in the biological category. Now, why do I do that? Because mathematical beauty is, in a sense, the most extreme example of the experience of beauty derived from knowledge and learning, because only someone who is a proficient mathematician can appreciate the beauty of a mathematical formula. However, if you take an Indian or a Japanese or an English or a German or a Latin American mathematician, and they know the language of mathematics, they can appreciate the beauty of a mathematical formula. Mm-hmm. So, what does it consist of? It consists of the fact that it makes sense. It makes, oh, God, that makes sense. And then. How would it <coughs> be different
1: from the experience of beauty that a car mechanic might have anywhere in the world when he opens an engine? Uh, uh,
0: uh, uh, no, no, uh, allow me, allow me. Uh, uh, it makes sense to the logical deductive system of the brain, mm-hmm. all right? Logical deductive system of the brain, and that uh, is the same in uh, people of different culture. And hence, it was uh, Paul Dirac who said that when you want to judge the truthfulness of a mathematical formula, don't go by its simplicity first, but go by its beauty. And he says, and and many others have told me that, I'm not a mathematician or physicist myself, uh, the theory of relativity was first accepted because of the beauty of the mathematical formulations. Now, you ask me, how does this differ with with, with uh, uh, a from
1: China or in Japan uh, or UK? Uh, or yeah,
0: but, uh, well, uh, it 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 differs in this uh, sense is is uh, in in that the car mechanic probably does has not worked out how to you you uh, design a car. He may know how it works, yeah. but. Let us be clear that a car mechanic whom you confront with a problem which he uh, is mystified by but then finally solved it mm-hmm. and is excited by it, I am sure that he also will get activation in the media orbital frontal cortex. So why do I say that? Because what is the experience of beauty? Well, there are lots of things you can say about it, but it certainly involves reward. All right? And... Uh, I think the sudden illumination in looking at a car gasket <laughs> mm. uh, also is a rewarding experience. So I shouldn't be at all surprised. And there is, there come interesting questions of what is beauty? Now, you see, um, um, you neurobiologically know, speaking, please, uh, because you know the, the, the art historians and philosophers are terribly excited if you address the question of beauty. But you see, M- moral beauty, by which I mean that, for example, if you were to be asked, you're hungry, and you're to be and you're in a scanner, you were to be asked, well, I can give you a very nice succulent steak, but you can give it up to a hungry child. It's up to you. Um, you, If you take it to yourself, you're satisfied. If you give it up, you uh, morally satisfied and uh, uh, the moral satisfaction seems to to, to, uh, connect with activity in the medial frontal cortex now if you look at sorrowful beauty which i've just done which is by the way a category that's not often talked about but much of the beauty that that we experience is sorrowful i mean the mass in b minor of bug is sorrowful um, the Requiem of Mozart is sorrowful, much of Wagner is sorrowful, and many paintings of Titian, the taking of Christ of Caravaggio, these are all sorrowful things. They, you don't smile and laugh in front of them. And that also correlates with activity in the meteor-orbital frontal cortex. So mm-hmm. that brings you back to the question raised by uh, Plato in Timaeus. Mm-hmm. What is his beauty of the subject of the object, linked to the object, or is it none of these, but something detached from all of them? There's a question in philosophies of aesthetics. It's also a question for neurobiology, but in a different way, because we want to study it neurobiologically. They want to study it more philosophically.
1: Right. But now the point is, what (coughs) I you with the car mechanic is that, like in the the domain of musical um, aesthetics, So first we we talk about epistemic emotion, right? It's an emotional state, Mm -hmm. it's a feeling that relates to our knowledge structures. Yes, 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 yes. This is what we're we're talking about. Now, Heron in the domain of music would say, well, aesthetic experience in music has everything to do with anticipation, right? So it is to what extent does the music I'm perceiving match or mismatch with my anticipations, right? And then there you want to find some sort of a balance between confirmation and surprise. This would be Mm -hmm. so, in some sense, you could argue then that independent of the domain, whether it's mathematics or cars, this is the commonality, that
0: expectation, the
1: balancing of, of, of confirmation and surprise. Would you go along with that if you want to define, let's say, aesthetic experience as an epistemic emotion that actually reflects that specific balance yes. between confirmation and surprise?
0: Yes, confirmation, but confirmation of what? Now, of your
1: prediction, of expectations. Yeah.
0: Well, I'd like to go beyond that. I'd say that, that 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 when I undertake a mathematical equation, which let me assure you, I do not, because I, but when mathematicians do, and they hit a solution which makes, uh, which satisfies them, they say, oh, that's it, i have got the right solution. Uh, what is that? Uh, it is an expectation which is satisfied. It satisfies the brain's logical deductive system. Okay.
1: Does the brain have a logical deductive system? Absolutely,
0: it does. Sense. Absolutely it does. I mean, there is no logic in the world outside. It, 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 you know, the, the, the whole idea of Godel, See, people talk about Godel's incompleteness theorem as though it is um, a study in mathematics. It's nothing of the sort. It's a study of the brain's logical system and the limits.
1: Now, for instance, you, you, here in Barcelona, we love football. We love players like Messi, yes. who do real-time problem-solving of the highest complexity and, and artfulness. And in some sense, you could also argue, well, he has to solve um, dynamical problems as well. And they have their intrinsic beauty in the same way as the mathematician that Mm. solves his equation. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes, yes, Yes. So that means that that experience is not necessarily a result of a specialized logical deductive system. But a more generic problem-solving system that feeds also action systems or perceptual
0: systems. Yes, but I mean, uh, you, you, uh, uh, I perhaps misexplained myself. I am not saying that um, the the beauty is is uh, we were talking about expectation, and I was just giving you a mathematical system. It it is it is satisfying the expectations mm-hmm. of a logical deductive system that will only be satisfied with this answer because then mm-hmm. that is true, but. There is also, you're quite right, the, 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 if you want to call it logical system, that's if, if fine, but the, the, the progression of action in, a, uh, in motor activity, which can be extremely beautiful. I, mean, I was watching with amazement the other day a replay of the goal that Pele achieved in 19, what a remarkable thing, and of course it was absolutely right in terms of logic of action in terms of logic of time, in terms of logic of distance, where he positions himself, and uh, it uh, it satisfies the viewer. You say, my God, he's got absolutely right, and it is beautiful. So I do not mean to say that, uh, I mean, I think that the logical deductive system of the brain is a biological system, Mm -hmm. which I think mathematicians have not understood. uh, It is a biological system, and there are limits to it, which and Gödel demonstrated that. Um, but it's not the only system. Now, let me take, give you another example of expectation. Expectation, I mean, when, when I look at a beautiful face, that also satisfies certain expectations. And what are the expectations that I can talk about? I can say that it satisfies the fact that the eyes and the nose and the mouth are in the correct disposition with respect to each other, that they are the correct proportions. That there is nothing, nothing uh, violently uh, um, against my expectation, and then I get a man like Francis Bacon, who says, "I want to give people a visual shock." That's what he said. My aim is to give a visual shock. What did he do? He subverted the brain's representation of the brain, and therefore the expectation. So when you look at a Francis Bacon, you say, "My God, this may have all sorts of painful qualities, but that's not what the face looked like. It's not mutilated like that." <laughs> so there are all these right. different expectations. So
1: in some, this is what I was challenging you on, that I think that in the domain of aesthetics, there's always this risk to sort of disconnect it from the biology, from real real world action.
0: Absolutely.
1: in everyday life. So I was just trying to see whether you subscribe to that, or whether you see also then aesthetics as an everyday common phenomenon,
0: I see it as an everyday, common brain phenomenon. That's exactly, right. okay. my view of it. Is. but, no, but the, don't tell that to the philosophers. If you city. it, they get very angry.
1: Absolutely, we will not distribute this podcast <laughs> to any of those. You can. <laughs> so, that, but then the other thing is so. So, if you look now at, at art and the progression of art and their discovery of, let's say, principles of perception and principles of experience, if you want, right, way beyond where we are with our science, in which period in art history do you think most of these discoveries were
0: made well i think they were made at various uh, periods but i mean let me give you one example which i'm especially uh, interested in um, um, and that is the uh, period of michelangelo now you might say that michelangelo made no discoveries at all but michelangelo did make a huge discovery which was to do to to uh, represent the human body all right as it should be if you look at the the drawings and paintings before him they don't have this power they don't have the sensuousness and he did that and he did that by the way I, was, I must say this because there was an article in London two days ago saying that people thought that Michelangelo used the golden ratio. Michelangelo never did anything of the kind. Michelangelo said, I don't need measuring instruments because all my measuring instruments are in my brain. The fact is that when you, when you come to uh, do a great representation of the human face or human body, the golden ratio is implicit in that, all right? So that is one of the of, of the great um, uh, n- new um, stages. I would I would say that the the cubism, well before that, uh, Cezanne. and after the Cezanne, the cubists who were inspired by Cezanne, were uh, two of the great uh, uh, stages. There may be many many others. Um, I think uh, I myself there's one one. Um, uh, of small, few periods, the, the mature, what he called my mature poesie of Titian, Titiano, when he started drawing with his uh, fingers, got, got rid of the brush, and was trying to represent motion. It was very successful uh, and, and very, very good, but there, may, there must be many others.
1: But now, do, do you feel that contemporary art, in that sense, is more deconstructing these principles than necessarily discovering them?
0: I have got a very unhealthy relationship with contemporary art because you know they tell me so, so I, go, I go to the Ludwig Museum in, in, in um, uh, Cologne and I see a filing cabinet in front of me now this filing cabinet is not the filing cabinet of Bismarck it's not the filing cabinet of Angela Merkel it's a filing cabinet which could have been purchased possibly from um, IKEA. Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed to be sitting there to contemplate myself in relationship to this filing cabinet. This is not of great interest. Whatever knowledge I may get out of it, it's not of great interest because there are so many other things that I can do. So I go to a room in the same museum and I see an empty white room. So I ask the attendant what's going here. And they said, Oh no, this is the exhibit. See? So I'm supposed to be contemplating that white room. It's it's not of great interest. And I really think that we should tell museum curators, that the time has come to stop. But there are other things which I think I'm very interested in. For example, a famous installation art, contemporary art, uh, uh, Tracy Emmons, The Bed. It is a, a depiction of a bedsit, unmade bed, cigarettes on the floor, a bottle of gin somewhere, whatnot. Now, <coughs> I don't say this is beautiful, but it is representative of thousands of bedsits in uh, London and elsewhere. So in a sense, that gives you knowledge. And that's why I think that that is not, for me, in the same category as lots of uh, uh, things which I don't admire so much. I'll tell you an interesting story. At the Tate Gallery in London, some German artist uh, had an installation. And part of of this installation was a waste paper basket with lots of rubbish in it. Well, the day after the thing was installed, the cleaning woman next morning came to clean, so she emptied the waste paper (laughs) basket. She had to be told never to touch it again, because it's part. But in a sense, her action was logical. Mm -hmm.
1: But now, in some sense, you are using two definitions of, of the impact of art. One is an epistemic emotion or an emotional state. Another end is to acquire knowledge but to acquire (laughs) knowledge seems to be a rather weak definition right because reading a book or going going to to, let's say read the manual of how to use my telephone is also a way to acquire knowledge but if I don't necessarily qualify as an artistic form of doing that
0: no 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 uh, uh, well uh, let me let me um, be more specific I think the function of the brain is to acquire knowledge and art is one means but it's not the only means It's one means of acquiring knowledge. If you speak to artists, they would say to you, Yes, I acquire a a great deal of knowledge Mm -hmm. about tables, about chairs, whatever I'm doing them. And we also acquire a great deal of knowledge. I mean, one of the, um, for example, the the, the Taking of Christ by Caravaggio, which is the the National Gallery in Dublin, it gives you a great deal of knowledge about the state of a man who knows he's being betrayed, who accepts his betrayal, and who is in agony. You know, it's a remarkable piece of work, uh, but I don't. What I'm, what I was really trying, or maybe I did not say it. Um, I don't think that suddenly during our evolution, a part of the brain developed in some people to, to do art. Mm-hmm. I think art is a byproduct of the, world, of the brain's knowledge acquiring system. Okay.
1: Yeah. So did you you have emphasized this now several times, right throughout the interview, this notion of the acquisition of knowledge as being the key function of the brain. Yes. And in some sense, this, this is a very platonic notion that was also criticized by Dewey, for instance, mm-hmm. who was saying, well, why for, for the Greek philosophers knowledge was actually the, the core objective of their philosophy, didn't talk about the brain necessarily, is that labor was so far removed from their everyday existence because labor was left to the slaves. Labor physical activity in the work was something that was unfamiliar to them so for therefore for them the highest you know value in life could just be to contemplate and learn while and of course dewey was also a pragmatist right well actually knowledge is anchored in action so so from that perspective you could argue well isn't it fair to say that the main purpose and function of the brain is to generate action, but in order to do that, it needs knowledge?
0: Yes, I think I would go along with that, absolutely, okay. yes. I don't, I don't think that the knowledge is an end uh, point in itself. I think you obtain knowledge to undertake action. But then sometimes you cannot undertake action. But you see, the important thing about obtaining knowledge, really, is that to obtain knowledge, you have to stabilize the world. Mm-hmm. You cannot do it without that. And to stabilize the world is a big, big problem. I mean, in color vision, you can see uh, you know, it's a major issue. But also, um, in, in in a way, in these articles uh, or work on, on black holes and um, dark matter and dark energy and uh, quantum gravitation, these are all attempts to stabilize the world in order to be able to obtain knowledge about it. Because otherwise, otherwise there are too many signals reaching us. We don't know what, what sense to make of it. So, um, now, uh, I, I am uh, I'm a Platonicist or a, a, a Platonic in my approach because, in a sense, I think that Plato was, was right in saying that you can only obtain knowledge about things through a thought process. You cannot obtain this knowledge by simply looking at something. There you obtain an opinion.
1: About manipulating or experimenting with things physically. Oh, yes,
0: but you have to, Well, if you're experimenting with it, you're employing a thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he thought, uh, 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 in fact, I mean, one of the, one of the weaknesses of Plato, I think, is that when he talked about forms, his theory of forms, was things like love and beauty and justice, and he only vaguely came to the idea that, that a house may constitute a form. Mm-hmm. But he did, in the Republic, say that if you want to obtain knowledge about a couch, uh, you cannot obtain it from a single couch, you've got to think about it, and and in a way I think this is true, so you build up a concept unconsciously, so I think people have dismissed Plato perhaps uh, unnecessarily for, for uh, saying that you cannot obtain knowledge by just looking at something.
1: But that, so, so what do you see today as the main achievements of this field of neuroaesthetics?
0: The field of neuroaesthetics has done uh, uh, quite a few things. It's only 15 years old, so let me summarize for its achievements. First of all, it has shown that there are subjective mental states which you can study scientifically in the sense that you can localize the activity that relates to these and secondly and most importantly you can quantify that activity and that activity is parametrically related to the intensity of the declared experience.
1: But that in itself is generic, that's not specific to neuroesthetics. This might be also, well, in general, let's say, perceptual tasks. Or
0: well, yes, but I mean, it just so happens, neuroaesthetics atta- 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 attack these problems first, attack the question of beauty first. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, neuroaesthetics has shown that, that in terms of not only of beauty, but allied experiences, such as those of desire and love, have the identical systems of... Uh, localizable, um, studyable, quantifiable things. Thirdly, it has answered the question which has eluded uh, 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 philosophers of aesthetics for centuries and the question was actually very well framed by Clive Bell, uh, question who was an art critic. He said, what do all things which we experience as beautiful have in common? Because unless they have something in common, we are gibbering. They have never been able to answer this question, but we can answer this question, which is that the, the, uh, uh, all things which we experience beautiful have one thing in common, though only in the neurobiological world, we cannot speak about the world outside, which is that they correlate with activity in the same parts of the brain, and they correlate with activity there parametrically. Fourthly, or fifthly, it has attacked one of the most extraordinary problems uh, in, in, um, uh, in philosophy and in knowledge which is the experience of mathematical beauty and opened up a whole Pandora's box about what the experience of mathematical beauty is and, um, and I think this is something which is going to develop more and more now there are a lot. Of th- these are, I'm giving you the main achievements. There are lots of other things. I mean, it's, it is inquiring into the role of experience in the generation of beauty, which is a topic that interests me less personally because I'm interested in the what is the skeleton in the brain that is able to experience beauty regardless of source. Um, it has. It is beginning to address questions about uh, literary beauty and beauty in dance and movement. So they're doing quite a lot of things. But these seem to me to be uh, the important issues. But
1: can you decouple that from questions around consciousness? Because beauty as such is nothing; must, must be experienced. Mm-hmm. Right? Must be mm-hmm. experienced. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So how do you see that link then between these epistemic uh, aesthetic emotions and conscious experience?
0: Well, I don't think you can uncouple it. Mm-hmm. I think you must address the question of consciousness. But... You see, here you go again to to, to the uh, sort of um, um, dichotomy between quantum mechanics and, and, and gravitational physics. The knowledge that the two are contradictory does not stop you from pursuing good experiments in quantum mechanics, making huge advances in it, or in gravitational physics. Now, the knowledge that we do not have an answer to the problem of consciousness will not inhibit us from studying the uh, brain's aesthetic system. We just assume, we make the assumption, which is a fair assumption, and in fact you can't proceed without making that assumption, but you don't factor it into your um, experiment because it is there. Mm-hmm. You just assume that, that, that uh, you, you, you um, are experiencing something because you're conscious. Now look at the opposite picture. Supposing we said, oh, I cannot study aesthetics, I cannot study uh, the uh, brain system for experiencing beauty unless I have a system of consciousness. Then you'll probably end up not solving the problem for years. After all, what have the people who are studying consciousness? What have they really told us about consciousness? I think I perhaps go. I think that the the important thing about consciousness is the the studies which I sort of adhere to are the ones which have shown us the minimal conditions required for consciousness. But I also adhere with to what Stuart Sutherland once said that not a single sentence written about consciousness is worth reading
1: <laughs>
0: right. because we don't know we don't we don't know really, mm-hmm. and we don't know it, i mean it's it, it's fashionable, I know, but we don't know even at what level to address it true we don't know whether it's localizable, mm-hmm. nothing
1: well, I just wrote many sentences on it actually, so oh. maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> But
0: now, so, so <laughs> well, that's all right. as as, <laughs> as long as long as you give credibility to what i've said
1: exactly but now so how many years before you think we will have a full-fledged neurobiological understanding of beauty
0: mm, i think uh, i am not really i'm not really able to tell a full-fledged biological understanding of beauty requires above all to understand something extremely extremely difficult which is is beauty a quality that slapped onto situations slapped onto object or is it a part of these situations uh, uh, intrinsically part of? It? just just as you say uh, can you exp- uh, is consciousness something which is slapped on the experience of beauty or is it part and parcel of the same thing so I'd be very reluctant to, to tell you how long it will take. That's a, that's a question that has been with us for 2,500 years. And mm. probably more. And probably more. And probably more. I documented 2,500 mm-hmm. years well, old.
1: take the, 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 the cave paintings, right? The Absolutely. These are definitely experiments in aesthetic experience, right? Because without 10, question. Years old, yes, more.
0: yes, without question. So, so, so I'd be very reluctant to mm-hmm. decipher okay. that.
1: So no, okay. We we made quite a, a grand tour here of many yes. things, right? Yes. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so so you also have, um, let's say, a targeted visit touched upon many issues using many different methodologies, many different preparations, to understand the brain, from this sort of multi-scale perspective, right? Linking the quantum and the gravitational perspective, mm-hmm. if you want. So, if we would follow in that, in that approach that you have developed, the, the, the lines that you have set out for yourself and now make progress on neurosthetics, what would be the law, Semir's law, that we have to adhere to?
0: The law? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, um, such as is it, the law of functional specialization. Transport to, to, to how do
1: you just get a handle on how beauty is processed by the brain, for instance?
0: I would say the the law that I would um, like to be associated with me, but actually it's associated with Edmund Burke. Or <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I do. <laughs> we need Zeki's law. <laughs> I derive it from like, Zeki's law is Burke's law. No, 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 that doesn't work. Okay, I'll tell you. Zeki's law is, and I'll tell you something which is generally original to Zeki, it's not found in uh, Immanuel Kant either, Mm -hmm. that beauty can be firmly divided into two parts, biological beauty and artifactual beauty. That biological beauty is dependent upon inherited brain concepts and artifactual beauty is dependent upon acquired brain concepts. That biological beauty being dependent upon inherited brain concepts is not easily modifiable. In other words, you can't have somebody with one eye here and one eye here being beautiful. Um, Whereas artifactual beauty is synthetic. It changes with time and with experience. And that these are the prerequisites for studying beauty. And uh, I think that all beauty, all beauty, this is different from what Kant is saying, all beauty must be interfaced through a brain concept. Mm-hmm. either inherited brain concept or acquired brain concept mm-hmm. the one thing which I am not really, and, and finally finally I can say uh, uh, the experience of everything beautiful colors with activity in one same part of the brain mm-hmm. in addition to other parts but they differ between the, uh, but the one, one big question which I would uh, be prepared to spend a lot of time is to address the question of whether beauty is a separate faculty and entity which is slapped onto things or not so yes. I've given you five laws now Now
1: wait, if I want to print, uh, print Seki's law on a t-shirt I'm in trouble <laughs> <laughs> I need a really big t-shirt so how do we compress that down into a law because the law has to be normative right, this is important now it's a normative statement something that others will have to do or will have to follow in order to make progress
0: Beauty is a brain-generated concept which depends either on inherited or acquired concept. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, there you go. That fits on a
0: T-shirt. That fits on a (laughs) T-shirt.
1: Now, the other thing is, despite Brexit, I think we will still visit this sort of the deteriorating
0: empire (laughs) across the channel. It might get better.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You never know indeed. So three years from now, I'm going to visit your site, step into the lab and say, okay, Samir, three years ago you gave me a prediction and now I want to see whether you confirm it or not. So what's the what's the main prediction you would like to share with me today that you will see confirmed <laughs> and tested three years from now?
0: I would this is a, you're making it very difficult. I would say that the main prediction I would like to to uh, to uh, confirm in three years time is that the um, system of physical and mathematical beauty is entirely biological mm-hmm. and entirely dependent upon the brain's logical system. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to prove. OK, good. I, w- I, w- I actually will retire if I did that. <laughs> i come and
1: check. Yes. So, Samir Zeki,
0: thank you very much for this conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Nice. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometrics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.